I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Tatenda Musapatiki, the founder and CEO of Voter Formation Project, an organization focused on increasing voter participation by using digital communication and technology. Tatenda is a former client solutions manager for democratic politics at Facebook. We discuss the ways in which Facebook has used their massive platform to push misinformation that benefits them. From the insurrection on January 6th to the war in Ukraine, Facebook has helped shape the voice and narrative around all of these events. But the most important question we try to answer in this conversation is whose job it is to hold Facebook accountable. So let's find out. Please enjoy this conversation with Tatenda Musapatiki. Tatenda Musapatiki, welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. I should say welcome back. And I'm really happy to talk to you because, you know, one of the things that's been consistently on my mind is misinformation. So you're the perfect person to talk to right now, especially how it might affect the upcoming elections, the midterms, because there doesn't seem to be an organized strategy to counter misinformation, at least not at the legislative level. I mean, whose job is that? Oh, my gosh. What a basic but such a hard question to answer. I think people the world over are struggling with it. And I think we have struggled with it. So, you know, if you look back at different media, we've always, at least growing up for me, you know, you'd be in the grocery store and you'd see these outrageous headlines on the tabloids. And, you know, that technically was a lot of misinformation, but it was restricted to like a purchased magazine and it had, you know, limited reach and views. But at the same time, it still did impact it. But that was like about celebrities and whether or not like Tom Cruise was an alien or what have you. And so what makes things a bit more dangerous now is that you're not just seeing misinformation when you're at the grocery store. It is ever present on our phones, in our social media feeds, which is where we consume a lot more information and spend a lot more time than we think we do. And I think people aren't quite aware of just the volume of time that we spend on our phones and in social media, or even with digital video across different platforms. And it's all very segmented. So Because of how social media feeds have been designed to be tailored to an individual user, we don't really have a sense of the scale and scope of who's seeing what and where and how much misinformation is existing and from the sources because it really is distributed individually. So all that to say, who's in charge of it? Great question. I feel like social media companies do have a responsibility to limit the amount of misinformation. On the one hand, you could try and regulate it as well. So it could be a federally regulated issue. It could be a state regulated issue. And in some instances, this misinformation, it may even be a criminal matter. So it's really hard to say. I think there's a constellation of forces that are responsible for misinformation. I also think that there's a level of personal responsibility in your consumption as well. So I don't think anyone knows, I guess, (laughs) the meandering way I got to saying this. I don't think anyone really knows who's responsible for regulating or stopping misinformation. I think there are different places where different entities or people or individuals could have some responsibility. That sounds like a really big problem, right? I mean, before this interview, I started to look for the answer to that question. And, you know, there was a congressional task force that was formed for COVID misinformation and disinformation. And of course, there's the January 6th committee, which is something different, but, you know, misinformation is involved to some extent. And so that's a problem, right? Like, you know, legislatively, we don't have solutions. We can't hold the private companies accountable or we can hold them accountable, but that holding them accountable isn't working, right? So I'm not really sure. I feel like we're at a loss. We are. And frankly, I don't really trust Congress to solve any problem at this point, right? Like they are truly nearly a dysfunctional body. 
And as much as I believe in the power of government, I think that right now we're in a place where our Congress is completely unable to do anything about it. And more generally, I think what's more frightening, and I'm sorry, I'm not a place of solace for this conversation, is that, you know, I was at Facebook and I think it was 2018 when Mark Zuckerberg first went before the congressional committees to talk about Facebook. And people should be embarrassed about how little their representatives know about how the internet works and that social media company works. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> before, you know, they had all the time in the world to do some research. And so if this is the body that's supposed to be protecting us from misinformation, I just don't think it will ever happen. Nor do I think our Congress has the ability to get it together, at least like in Europe, they were able to pass pretty comprehensive legislation around privacy and other internet issues. And I just don't see that same thing happening here. And so in the face of that, what does that mean? I think it means that consumers have to do a really strong job of holding social media platforms accountable for creating safe environments. But at the same time, those same consumers are the same people ingesting and proliferating misinformation. So it really is just such a complex problem. And I almost cringe when I hear people say, well, the social media companies can just fix it or Congress can just fix it. And, and no, like there's so many different problems from how the misinformation is created down to media literacy about how can people identify misinformation or even just what counts as misinformation versus someone mistaken, which is also a thing. So it's just so complex. And I think one thing I would love for people to take from this conversation is that there isn't a simple answer and that we need to be approaching misinformation from a wide variety of lenses in order to try and limit its effects and its proliferation. Right. And you know, you're right. Those committee hearings were kind of cringe. I don't know if I'd go as far as saying they were embarrassing, but it was surprising and not surprising to see how little they understood about these technology companies. But, you know, I think in a way that that's intentional on the part of the technology companies. You know, they're opaque <laughs> and that allows them to do things that are more profitable for them, even when they're not in the interests of the public. That's one thing I'll say. And then, you know, in response to your saying, like, you know, it's consumer's responsibility to some extent. Which consumers, right? Which consumers? Because as soon as power shifts hands from left to right or right to left, you know, misinformation and disinformation is redefined based on their ideology. And that's what makes it so hard. I would encourage people and I have fallen prey to, you know, retweeting something and learning it's fake later. I'm like, oh, shit. I herald myself on being like a really educated like user and I've fallen for things. And so I think having every person try and be a bit more cognizant, but even then, you know, there are a lot of users and people out there who just don't know the difference, especially older internet users. I think we often can forget that a lot of elderly and older people use the internet, but they don't have the same level of literacy that millennials and younger do because we grew up with this tool, right? And we are able to suss out I think a little bit better what seems real, what seems fake and whatnot. And so I say that with a grain of salt, not to say that like people are responsible. No, not at all. It's just to, to add another level of complexity as to the things we need to think about. But certainly like what is categorized as misinformation? What is fake news, false news? <laughs> you know, like how do we even label these things? It'll change. But again, I come back to this idea that there's so many different levels of what we're trying to combat that, you know, I just thought of this, it almost makes sense to start from the four of what do we want? And what we want is a truthful media ecosystem. What we want is truthful information. And I think there is a place for opinion. And then there's a place for facts. And right now what is happening is that we are 
mishmashing lies with opinion and fact and presenting things either purposefully or unpurposefully to suit, you know, political opinion. And it's, there's no easy remedy for what we are seeing. Again, like, I I wish I could be like the, we have a solution girl. But right now, I, I think it's really hard for us to understand the scope and magnitude of what we're dealing with, except for to say that one of the things we do know about how to combat it is that you present facts to people. Like when people are presented with misinformation, if you come to them and say, this is fake, this is fake, don't post it, that actually psychologically makes more people harden in that belief that's not real. So the best way that we can counter misinformation is through presenting facts and making someone consider the truthful information versus the misinformation. And then people are more likely to question misinformation as they see it, so long as they are presented with a countervailing opinion or a countervailing fact. And so one of the things I can think of that we need to do is just be very aggressive with making sure that we are putting out correct news and making sure that feeds of all stripes of people are seeing actual information of what's happening. And that's, again, easier said than done. Right. You know, as you were saying that, I was thinking that the closest model I think we might have, you can tell me if this is fair or not, the closest model that I can think of would be maybe the FCC. Is that a good comparison? I don't even know if there is a comparison, right? Like the thing that I can think of the most is if you're looking at, you know, the proliferation of news and people used to get their facts from like three news channels that would compete for the, you know, the 6 p.m. news slot. And that is how most Americans got their news. And then they would turn to newspapers. And now we're seeing that these institutions of media are mistrusted and there's just so many more outlets, right? Our media consumption has been very, very, very diversified. And it allows people to come away from a certain set of facts that were seen as standard and then allow for people to kind of pick and choose what news they prefer. And so I think the media ecosystem is seeing a similar but less pervasive and a less less pervasive, I think, is the right way to put it because you have more financial ramifications. So for instance, look at an OAN where like you can't get distribution (laughs) if you're like that far out there and you can get sued for that. And we just aren't seeing the same mechanism for these social media companies because they're not media companies. I mean, as much as we would like to say that they are, they're distributing already created news. They're not creating it themselves. So maybe we change some categorizations that way the FCC could be more of a regulator in terms of that. But we would have to fundamentally change how we define media, how we define social media system and, or social media companies, and how all of those things intersect. You know, so the January 6th committees are now set to start in a couple of months, I think sometime in June. Originally, I think it was in April, but now it's in June. You know, but it feels like new information is being uncovered every single day. Who was involved, what they did, you know, which social media companies. Actually, the social media piece has always been pretty consistent, and that's been mostly on Facebook, (laughs) particularly on Facebook, you know, as far as the public is concerned. One of the things that happened early on in relation to the planning of January 6th was the formation of that group, the Stop the Steal Facebook group. And I think it was created right after the election in November. And it was only after January 6th happened that Facebook made a move to take them down. I think it's fair to say that that was too late, obviously, right? And I think it was a day after that, that Twitter took down a similar group and it took Trump off of Twitter. What took them so long to make that move? Oh gosh, you are bringing me back to a time in my life where I would just (laughs) be like asking the same question. So I think there are a lot of forces at play when people are thinking about how do social media companies decide to take down something. So one, first it's time and identification. The thing about groups is that groups tend to be less 
prominent than feed to find, if that makes sense. Like you can make groups private. They don't have the same level of visibility as like any kind of public post. And they're a little bit harder to surface until you have huge amounts of people in them. And that's not to say there weren't, but identifying groups is something that I think that at least when I left, and that was now four years ago, wow, identifying or being proactive about identifying dangerous speech in groups was a novel place to begin work on enforcement, right? That was like a thing that organizations still hadn't come to grips with like, oh, we need to do this better. So that's one, finding the groups themselves and the content within them. I think step two that I think more people are understanding, but like there is always a debate about the bounds of speech versus the bounds of safety. And one thing worth highlighting is that many times in these conversations, you don't necessarily have the most diverse group of people making the decisions. One, in some instances you do, but in many you don't. And when I say diverse, I don't just mean in terms of race. I also mean in terms of political ideology as well. So that's another piece. And so you'll have folks saying we need to err on the side of free speech. I say Mark Zuckerberg very much so believes in this ideal of like more speech equals better society, which is arguable (laughs) at best. And so you have that determination, right? Another thing that can take time is like any bureaucracy, someone identifies something, someone makes a recommendation, they tell their boss who tells their boss who tells their boss who tells their boss, and then it becomes an entire debate. And then the head honcho has to make a decision. This all takes time as well. And then the other thing is that there are always considerations made for the politics of the situation. As much as any organization will claim that there weren't, that's not true. Like there are decisions made or there are not even decisions, but comments made about if we do X thing, it is going to have this impact on X politician, which could have this impact on our business. It could have this impact on our ability to lobby. It could have this impact on these certain people or Republicans' perception of Facebook. And it's going to cause us this media storm, which could cause us a lot of a drop in users. So there is always a political and business aspect to each of the decisions that are made. Obviously, the wrong one was made, right? Like they took too long. I was not there. I cannot say this, but I am very confident that I am sure someone was screaming internally about making the right decision who wasn't listened to. I'm pretty confident that was probably happening. And it might have even been multiple people just because I saw that happen frequently. So they took it down too late. And ironically, I'm guessing, because again, I was not there, that many of the countervailing decisions as to why they shouldn't take it down all became moot once there was an actual violent insurrection planned on the platform. Yeah, I just want to make it clear when you say, and just for the audience, when you say you left Facebook, you mean you left the company as an employee, not left Facebook in the way that like the rest of us are leaving Facebook, right? Like you were actually there. I was an employee in the Washington, D.C. office from 2015 to 2019. So, yes, I should have said that in my bio. (laughs) I was an employee. I worked in the D.C. office. I was a client solutions manager for Democratic politics, which meant that I was on the sales team helping to support Democratic super PACs and left-leaning nonprofit organizations with their Facebook strategies and buys. We were colloquially termed embeds after the 2016 election. I think there was a lot of talk of Trump's embed. Well, guess what? Democrats had one, too. I was one. (laughs) Whether or not I was listened to with the same fervor, that's a whole other discussion that could take another 45 minutes, I'm sure. But yes, I left the company during that time. So I'm pretty familiar with policy decisions and how they're made because many of my clients were involved in policy disputes, whether it be ad policy or organic policy. Just you can't escape understanding that process when you know you work in politics at that company at that time. And we do know that you're right about there being people internally who were screaming through the roofs. I don't know what the, <laughs> the phrase is. They were screaming a lot really loudly about this because there was this cache of documents that came out. I think it was this time last year. I don't know how they got those documents. Well, actually, it was I, a whistleblower. Yeah. Oh, the whistleblower. That's right. That's right. 
And, uh, you know, about employees saying like, oh, God, you know, please do something. You know, why haven't you done anything, you know, up until this point? So we do know that that's true. It's a dynamic I saw <laughs> frequently enough or participated in myself. So like I, it's not even that I block out the Facebook papers. It's just that it was so much that brought me like back to my time there, like even just ingesting the stories. And I was like, I wasn't there for that, but that seems right. Those papers are somewhat reflective of how life was for Facebook employees at the time. And another thing you mentioned about it not being an easy thing to identify what should and shouldn't be allowed. You know, it's easy, you know, for someone like Trump, like, yes, remove the, the account. We know who this person is. We know what he's spewing. You know, but for groups, it's a little bit less clear. And the example that I thought of was, now, I am actually new to Facebook as a user, never an employee, but as a user. And I came onto Facebook only because, well, first of all, let me give you a little background. So I worked in technology, too. I left, I think it was shortly after the 2016 election. And I never got onto Facebook because I know, you know, being an employee of one of these companies, I know what happens with user data. So I never wanted to be on Facebook or Twitter or anything. But I only joined after the 2016 election because I wanted to go to some of the marches and the protests. And the only place that you could find these groups, especially in regard to the Women's March, was on Facebook. I only joined Facebook so that I could find out where the Women's March was. And I've been on ever since. And so... If you're internal to Facebook, if you're there as an employee, how do you differentiate the Women's March? There's a good chance that it would have never turned violent. But let's just say, how do you make a distinction between that kind of organizing and stop the steal? That's a lot of the questions that people wrestle with. And I think people who lean more conservative would say, you know, early on in the organizing, you couldn't see a difference, right? And I think that's fair. I think that People come to social media groups and discussions wanting to be honest about their thoughts and feelings. And, you know, there is a line between safe or nonviolent conversation and violent conversation, right? And I think it is when you start to see organizing of violence, I think it's when people start to organize bringing their weapons. When you start to see signs of that kind of organizing, that's where it becomes different because people were certainly angry after Trump was elected in those groups, like people wanted to make a change, but they were planning a nonviolent protest. It's not like people were like, we're going to come to the Capitol and bring your AK-47 and what other weapons you want. We're going in. It was like, no, we're all going to walk down the street with our pink hats on. You know, like there's just not even a difference in tenor, but like a complete difference in tactics being discussed. Like, no one was talking about like breaking a building or taking over the government. It was like, we want to send a message that women are not okay with the political regime, not we're going to take over the political regime and actually prohibit the United States government from doing its functions. So <laughs> that's where I think the difference is. I really think if someone seems to be organizing violence of any kind, or frankly, like the purchase or sale or exchange or grouping of weapons, which is not allowed on the platform anyway, that should probably be shut down. Excellent point. Yeah, <laughs> that's an excellent point. I think one of the things that isn't clear for people is what is in it for the social media companies. I understand that at some level, there's some kind of monetary gain, right? There's profit to be gained, you know, in users. But how does that work exactly? So keeping a group like Stop the Seal on or somebody like Donald Trump on Facebook for longer than he should have been, how do they benefit? Well, one thing I think that liberals can often take for granted as a liberal who 
worked closely with conservatives and very much so understands some of that thought process. It's that, one, conservatives spend more time. If you are looking at like consumption or time spent and interactions on platforms, like conservatives were spending more time than like very liberal people like doing these things on the platform. They spend more time. So if you alienate this person and if you alienate these views, you actually are alienating a huge population of people who use your service at a pretty high rate. And so that's one thing. Like there is the time spent. And when we talk about how these companies make their profit, the more time that users spend on a platform, the more that that platform can sell that time spent and the data that they collect from the time spent to advertisers. So that makes the platform extensively valuable to advertisers who are like, we want to get our product in front of as many eyeballs as possible and in front of these types of people. And if the platform can tell an advertiser, we have people interested in these things, they fit the demo of people you're trying to sell to, and you can put your product in front of their eyeballs and we can guarantee that time, that is how they make their money. Billions and billions of dollars a year. So that's like the first thing to realize, like time spent correlates to advertising dollars brought in. The next piece I would say is that for a company like Facebook, there are also ramifications politically in terms of regulation. So most companies don't want to be highly regulated. Typically, Republicans are for less regulation. Democrats like more regulation. And so you don't want to piss off the people who (laughs) are on your side in terms of regulation. So if you're saying, hey, we're going to cancel or we're going to you know, remove this person from the platform or remove this content, even if it's factually correct that it violates our terms of services, is bullying a certain group of people, it is discriminatory content we're taking down. That doesn't stop that other side from saying, okay, we agree with you, but we're going to take you to task in the media and we're going to make all of our voters hate you. And then we are going to punish you when we take power by regulating your company. Like that dynamic can still exist. So I think those are kind of the two biggest factors and to why there's a hesitation to take down any politician's content, really. Like, you just don't want to start that situation because you have big swaths of users who would be pissed off. And then you also have policymakers who would be pissed off. Has Facebook made any changes that have made any significant difference in the level of misinformation? You know, I mean, they've done some kind of superficial things, right? Like removing groups and, you know, but has anything internally happened that would change this for the long term? In my opinion, no. For a while, they had the third-party fact checkers that then would flag if something was misinformation. And instead of saying, hey, it's misinformation, would you know promote a countervailing thought process or like a countervailing piece of content. But then they started letting in partisan fact checkers who aren't interested in facts. So I was like, okay, this is bunk. I think they made some changes during the election in newsfeed to not or to deprioritize political content, which I actually think was good, even though I'm a political advertiser by trade now, and I run an organization that tries to put pro-democracy messages where C3, so we're non-partisans. I don't dabble in partisanship as much or anymore at all. They got rid of those changes to Newsfeed. So I can't think of anything I've read that I think strongly addresses the issue. Does any country get this right, right? We know there's some countries who just crack down to the point where you could question whether they're allowing free speech or, you know, impeding free speech. Does anyone get this right? I honestly don't know if I know enough to answer that question. (laughs) I haven't studied like international responses to it yet. And even then, it's just so tricky because you don't want to be China, (laughs) nor like just not have the service, nor do you kind of want what exists here either. So I, I honestly don't think I know enough to answer that question well. 
you know, so that's where you come in and where, you know, Voter Formation Project, which I love, by the way. And I love it because you combine two of the things that I love the most, technology and politics, right? You know, and remind me, the last time we talked, did you say that you were running campaigns on like Grinder, or was that a joke? It was a joke, but I have run campaigns on OnlyFans. Like I've tried. Oh, okay. Okay. OnlyFans. I'm not above it. And I totally would. And I, <laughs> let me tell you, when you're trying to explain to donors some of these things, it, it lends to really interesting conversations when someone asks you what OnlyFans is. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I need you to hang up and go open this in an incognito window oh, oh, that's and come back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you have planned to counter this before the midterms, before 2024, now, which we need it now, especially, you know, Elon Musk, I promised myself I wouldn't actually say his name aloud today, but I just have some things are afoot. Okay. I don't want to get completely derailed, but are we actually talking about in our system? Like Elon Musk was accused of kidnapping Azalea Banks in 2018. He has been sued by multiple investors. Like how are we pretending like this man should buy Twitter? Like it's okay. I don't understand at all how everyone's like, it's a great idea that he should buy Twitter. Even though, like, he's literally kidnapped a person and, like, he's been sued multiple times. But that's okay. I guess Twitter is going to Twitter. I don't know. It doesn't seem to make much sense to me. I don't think it makes sense to a lot of people. I also can't get over that, like, there was a whole story about how he kidnapped a woman. And, like, no one talks about it. I'm like, ah. Wild. So, Voter Formation Project, my love one organization. <laughs> we use the best in commercial marketing tactics to help drive or increase voting registration and voting rates among marginalized communities. We do this through predominantly advertisements. We're exploring more what it means to build organic content and partnerships with influencers in order to really create cultural content that resonates and then also measure exactly how effective our tactics are to get more people to register to vote and to get more people to vote who are infrequent voters. We are really, really focused on not just trying to get as many people to fill out our forms as possible, but on trying to motivate the least talked to the most unaffected by political messaging that exists folks out there to start to change attitudes and minds over a long period of time. We often hear a lot in politics that people should be organizing year-round, but we don't have any kind of online year-round organizing mechanism for promoting civic engagement. It's a complete hole in the pro-voting democracy space that we do not have any organization that is trying to fill the gaps to just literally positively brand voting to people who don't typically vote. And so we're trying to fill that gap. We are beginning to build our programs now. That way we can hopefully stay on in certain states through not just this election, but like all the way through 23 into 24, because we know that the communities that need to hear these messages the most are the ones that are often left behind in political messaging and political strategy because they're less likely to vote. And I don't think that we can live up to our American ideals unless we're truly trying to make sure that every citizen has is represented through their vote. You know, I love what you just said. I have to repeat it. To positively brand voting, right? You think that would be a given, right? But it isn't because there are certain groups and certain people who are trying to make voting a negative thing. And so I love that. You know, you can say it again if you want. But have you shifted strategies from in the past year or, you know, the last time we talked or have you expanded? What has changed? We have defined our states. So we're going to be working in Arizona, Nevada. Uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania, if we reach our initial fundraising goals, we are starting to like test. So a big thing that's changed since the last time we spoke is that 
Apple implemented a lot of privacy changes that have impacted how these organizations like mine and even all political organizations do their work. It is harder to get information about who is clicking off your ads from social media companies, which just changes the dynamic completely from what we're used to. So we're really starting from scratch and starting to test everything. We don't want to make any assumptions about how the internet is different, how people are using social media, how we can measure. It's hard to overstate the impact of this. Like it is a big deal that it is harder for us to get people to give us their email addresses. It just is. And also the internet's just very different. We now have like NFTs and everyone's talking about the metaverse. Cringe for me, but it's a thing we're all doing. And so we need to consistently be modernizing. It's why I love this work. Technology and how it's used in elections changes every two years. The platform that was hot then is not going to be hot the next year. And the thing that people, especially young people, are spending time on may not even exist for what's happening in 2024. So we like to make sure that we are testing every idea we can think of, going places where you don't typically think of folks having ads, places like How do we organize on Discord? How can we think about using Twitch? How are we involving gamers? How are we reaching people on TikTok? Like all of these are big questions we're asking and thinking about testing. Yeah. And so you love it because it is a challenge, right? I get that. I love it. Some days I'm like, why am I still doing this? (laughs) But But then I remember I'd be bored doing anything else. And the thing is about, you know, technology, the reason this is so hard, and I'm just telling you why your job's so hard, is because, you know, technology moves so quickly and it does so, you know, it does so because technology needs to move quickly to be relevant or to remain relevant. But also just because I think that in some ways, in regards to their policy, sometimes they move in a direction so that they can become more opaque. Like they don't want to be open so that people can figure out what they're exactly doing with data. Like, honestly, it's just, it's so hard. Like, I think you hit the mark, but it's also just thinking about it every day. It's like technology has to move and also like different populations move differently with different tech. So yeah, like you're right. It just, it's always evolving and it's some days it's lovely and other days it's frustrating. (laughs) But at the end of the day, I think it's exciting. And what gives this work purpose for me is that I can't think of any other way that I could bring this skill set to help improve communities and improve our democracy. I believe very, very strongly in the American ideal. And as someone who's been in electoral politics and been at the intersection of tech and electoral politics for almost a decade now, like this is where I think the urgency and need is for this moment. Like I do think we are in a crisis and I do think that technology can help alleviate that. And I don't think that we're pulling all the levers necessary So as much as like me and this org can start to do that and start to leverage these technologies and evangelize the need to brand voting and to positively brand voting and civic engagement, I'm here for it. Well, I have confidence that you will do this. So before we close out, tell me how can people get involved? Yeah, they can um, follow us on Twitter. We are at Voter Formation. Or if you are feeling so inspired, you can make a donation to our organization. Our website is www.voterformationproject.org. You can click donate in the upper right-hand corner. Tatinda, thank you so much for all you've done. Thank you for your work with us, your organization. And yeah, come back and talk to me again sometime. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry I was such a Debbie Downer in the beginning. I just, (laughs) it's scary and this information's big and... I don't think we should shy away from big problems. So I wanted to be honest. We need honesty. Thank you. 